Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food. From politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Hello, I'm Caroline Kenyon, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the latest edition of Bread and Butter. We have an unusual guest today, um, somebody young and engaged with British farming, which is not something that we necessarily associate with farming. I think the average age of the British farmer is something like 58. I might even be underestimating it. So welcome to Bread and Butter, Ed Gorst from a farm in Lincolnshire, Oxcombe. Hi, Caroline. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Ed, I gather that you've been working really hard on organising a farming conference at your family farm. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so I um, ran a conference called the Oxcombe Rural Conference, which is the name of the farm. And basically, I had the idea back in February to kind of do a a TED Talk style conference for young people in farming um, and wider related sectors. Um, And when I say young, it was sort of under 35. And the reason behind this is, as you say, most farmers in the UK are of the older generation. And I wanted to get young people together to sort of share their concerns, their ideas, their stories, um, what they'd been through in agriculture and what their thoughts were on where it was going. So it was really an opportunity to get a lot of young people together. Doing talks was, was obviously one part of it, but actually really just to to talk with each other really as well and to, to sort of see where where we were at and it was really interesting uh, lots of people said lots of interesting points and there was a real sense of actually we were all you know bearing the brunt of the similar struggles of agriculture in the UK and you know I think it was a great success and uh, we're, you know we're on for next year so um, that was it was a really positive positive thing. How exciting. So tell us a little bit about who your your participants were. Did they come from all around the country? How did you reach them? What kind of farms did they come from? So we had people from all over, um, from Scotland down to Dorset. They were typically either farmers themselves, uh, whether that was they were still there with mum or dad as the owner, but they were still sort of junior managers, if you like. Um, we had people who worked in land agency, uh, we had people who were in agronomy, um, and then we had a lot of people actually who weren't in the farming world at the moment, so to speak, um, and were in other sectors, but they had fa- farms back at home that they were going to go back and run eventually. Mum and dad were still very much running the show at the moment, and there's a long-term plan for them to get 
back into farming um, maybe in, in years to come, but they weren't there yet. And this was one of the interesting things, though, is to why are there so many people who will become farmers who are not farming in their 20s and are doing completely different careers? And that's a, that's a, a problem in agriculture because whilst they might be developing skills in accountancy, law, you know, teaching, whatever it might be, they're not necessarily becoming the best farmers, so to speak, yet. And I know there's lots of uh, skills that they'll learn that will be useful in different ways, but um, there's a there's a barrier, I think, to entry for people to get farming in their 20s, um, even those who have farms at home, which is a bit of a peculiar situation. What did you establish might be those barriers? Predominantly income. The, the incomes in farms are typically low on the whole. And if you might come from a big farm, mum and dad might be taking all that income. There's probably not enough to go around for everybody at that point in, in time. And, and also, if you're a young person in your 20s, whilst you might be passionate about agriculture, the idea of moving away from the cities where all your mates are, you know, having a lot of fun, there's a good crew. And this is something that really kind of we, we established is farming's pretty lonely. Um, and if you're in your 20s, you are missing out on a lot of fun that people are having working together in the city. And whenever I'm um, at home, you know, you feel it when you are, because I am not full-time farming at the moment. I do a lot on my holidays, but I'm a full-time school teacher. And I, when I come home, I really feel that sort of sense of being a bit lonely, to be honest. I mean, I am in the back end of nowhere in Lincolnshire and some people are better located. But even those who were farming in Hampshire or home counties where you think there might be more people around still had that feeling. I mean, I've got a friend um, who's in you know, quite far north in Northumberland. I think because they're so north, they have quite a strong community. And so I think you know he feels it less, but... That's a, that's a big issue. And also, it's, um, you know, I don't think it's very ad- well advertised to, to become a farmer straight away. I think when you go through that system of, of school, university, you are often advertised to go and do other things, whether it's a grad scheme or some sort of a profession, um, as opposed to go straight into farming. That's so interesting, Ed. And I suppose also, without getting into kind of personal detail, I think for, for young people to work with their parents is quite hard in their 20s. You know, you want to be carving out yeah. your own space. And, you know, I do have um, a very old friend who went straight from agricultural college to uh, run the family farm in Wiltshire with her father, but he just could not let go. Mm. And it didn't end well. <laughs> Exactly. So I just wonder how much of that is an issue is that there's that, you know, I think Freud called it separation, you know, when children, grown up children have to literally separate from their parents so that they can become their own people. Absolutely. I mean, there's another expression that springs to mind from is farmer's boy syndrome, which is where the son or daughter comes home to the farm, but... Um, mum or dad are still very much running the show, controlling the finances, making all the big decisions. And so the farmer's boy or daughter don't get that managerial experience. They don't get to make decisions about how they want to drive the farm for the next 20, 30 years. And so I know this sounds a bit harsh and it's not quite this true, but some ways they're not much more than a farm labourer, really, which is not true. But 
you know, ultimately, if they're not making the decisions, they're not getting the managerial experience, then they're not far off at the same time. And I mean, I have it, you know, I come, I come home and I want to do things in my direction. I want to take things how I see my farm going. But my parent, my mum has other ideas sometimes. Um, and so you have massive conflicts there of, of interest. And this doesn't apply so much to my situation, but another classic is the the farmer, who's the parent, who's the older, who in their 60s or 50s or whatever, is looking at retirement in the next 10 years, meaning they need to establish their income and for when they retire. And most farmers um, are often, compared to most sectors, bad at this. I can't remember the stat exactly, but it's like, like 20% of farmers haven't got a pension. And so what that means is they're needing some sort of income either from the farm or they're maybe needing to sell something from the farm and asset to provide for that, uh, which then complicates even more for the young person trying to take over. So the young person trying to take over might want to put a lot of investment into certain things to grow. But then the older farmer doesn't want to do that because they've got to look at their retirement. That is a conflict. Definitely. It's a conflict of needs, isn't it? So I'm just picking up on, you know, one of the things that you said earlier was about, you know, one of the reasons that that people of your age group do not go back to the farm in your 20s is because it's not generating enough income. How did your cohort of young people address that sort of issue? Were they coming up with exciting and creative ideas for generating more income? Were they feeling stumped or frustrated? just not quite sure where to turn what what kind of mood did you find i think there's, there's still optimism i mean you know farming across the landscape doesn't earn massive incomes compared to most other industries often no, that's not always true but you know there is optimism in terms of what a lot of people are thinking about is is how they can diversify so they're thinking of their farms not just in terms of the profit they can make from their uh, from their crops but from what other avenues they can explore, whether that is um, through natural capital, through um, tourism or through other endeavours, um, people are being very imaginative um, with what they can do, which is great because farming needs that entrepreneurship. And I think that could be a good thing, but that doesn't take away from the fact that why are they having to do that as opposed to just make good income from their you know, main purpose, which is to produce food? Well, I would agree with you that a farmer's main purpose is to um, produce food, but our government has not had that emphasis on farming. There's very much, you know, post-Brexit that farmers are custodians of the environment. So there's a tension there. Um, and there's a tension again with the fact that our food security is quite vulnerable, especially with, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine and with climate change. So my my view is personally that farmers should focus on um, on food production. But I'm just wondering how others of your colleagues were thinking about environmental issues and climate change is that something you talked about yeah so we, we actually did a workshop where we had not a debate's a strong word but a discussion about what is a farmer's role is it to be a custodian of nature or is it to be a food producer and there were older people who were also present at the conference um people in their 60s who were much more down the opinion of food production 
because I think that's what they were brought up as. When they were at agricultural college, nature conservation was not such a thing. And it was all about producing as much calories as you can. And I'm probably generalizing there a bit and oversimplifying it, but that was the gist of it, I think. Whereas now the young people who are, I think, very nature aware on the whole, not to say the old generation aren't, but in terms of how they farm, um, because we're starting to see some of the costs that conventional agriculture has put on the environment. And so there are a lot of people who are quite pro doing more nature orientated farming. But again, where do you strike that balance? Because you, 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 you know, I think people would disagree with me. The point of agriculture is to produce food. And that means that you sacrifice habitats for nature. So can you do both? Well, you can, I think it's more a case of minimize the impact of agriculture um, as opposed to it benefit nature. I don't think the two coincide. Uh, I think it's a, a, a damage limitation ca- uh, process. Uh, on the whole, not always true, but because there are examples where you know you can improve wildlife. But if we're comp- what I'm sort of getting at here is if you're comparing it to uh, a nature reserve, shall we say? In an agricultural system, it's going to be very hard to compete. So does that mean that uh, you're not going to be rewilding your farm? <laughs> well, you know, it depends what the government will pay, because if wow. they pay for it. <laughs> well, that's the thing, because, you know, subsidies, they lead what farmers will grow very often, quite understandably so. So, uh, you know, in sort of pre, pre-Brexit days, you would, you knew where the subsidies lay by looking at the colour of the fields, whether it was blue with borage or yellow with oilseed rape. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But they change quite often, the subsidies. I mean, with elms at the moment, people still aren't quite sure where that's going to be in five years' time. So it makes planning very difficult. Um, and then even if you are inclined to rewild, well, the government haven't said what the tax rules are with in things like agricultural property relief so you know going for rewilding that would be a big gamble i think if you're if you're looking at it from a tax perspective did you discuss um issues about growing more for a plant-based diet was that something that came up in conversation i wanted to bring that up but was told by um, wiser people than myself that it would be potentially for the first one quite contentious because typically farmers are in the UK I don't actually have any stats to back this up but of the cohort I know big meat eaters and that could be a generalization but there I think is a consensus that uh, we are proud to be often beef farmers lamb farmers pig farmers whatever and so I just stayed away from that one because I didn't want to hit any nerves because it is contentious. But it's a massively important question, and so maybe I shouldn't have shied away from it. Because, as you know, whatever it is, two-thirds of crops grown in the UK, I think, are um, grown for animal feed, right? So when we say we're 54% self-sufficient in the UK in terms of our food production, but of all the calories we're growing, a lot of that is going to animal feed, which is obviously not very efficient, so the question is, well, if we were to shift more to vegetarianism and veganism, we would obviously therefore be more self-sufficient in terms of calories produced. But we, we, yeah, we strayed away from that one. Maybe one to keep for year two. <laughs> yeah. 
So, Ed, if we had um, to raise coffee in the uh, studio with us, the Secretary of State for um, DEFRA, what would be the, the top couple of things you'd like to say to her and bend her ear on? I think it would be what can they do to incentivize people who aren't from farming backgrounds to get into farming? Because there's a massive barrier to entry there. And if you aren't from a farm, you're ch- I've got lots of friends I know who might be interested in farming or so they say, but how do you get into it if you're not from a farm? It's very difficult. You know, I've, I've, you can work in businesses that support agriculture, like accountancy, land agency, etc. But if you actually want to be a farmer, um, other than being a farm labourer, which is not quite the same in terms of having the control of the management, etc. It's 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 nigh on impossible, um, and I think that's a massive problem because you miss out on a lot of very talented, eager, keen people who could really innovate British agriculture. Um, so I think that would be my first one. I don't know what the answer is, but I think they need to change that because I think that's that's a big concern. Um, the second one would be to be much more crystal clear on where policy lies in terms of countryside stewardship or elms. I mean, that's a sort of a, a classic one, but it, it farmers, you know, we don't know what the, the grants are going to be at the moment for the next five years or so. So um, I think they need to be a bit more sort of clear on that. And the third one this is, I think, a bit off the cuff, but um, it's carbon credits. Farmers are being told that carbon credits um, are going to be a source of income for us, i.e. when we build topsoil, plant trees, hedgerows, etc., we take in carbon, we sequester carbon, should we be getting paid for that? But um, I've heard a lot of experts say that the process of fossilization, i.e. taking carbon out of the atmosphere and into long-term storage like fossil fuels, takes 15 million years or so. The idea that we can reverse that in the next 50 years, some would say is dreamy thinking. And if that's true, then I have heard some people say that there's a risk that carbon markets might cease to be a thing because people realize that it's actually quite futile, the idea that farmers can capture this carbon in a space of decades and so that kind of, you know, I just think they need to be a bit more clear on what, what the carbon code. And then we haven't even got, even if you say the carbon code system is a good idea and that farmers should be paid to sequester the carbon, then um, there's no clear metrics on that. There's no clear what, what the value is per tonne, how you measure a tonne of carbon being sequestered, etc. So that would be my third one. Excellent. And... Are you happy to share your your sort of dreams and and aspirations for your own farm when you finally take over the reins and run it full time? Well, <laughs> that's that's an if I take over the reins because this is the other main thing that we we kind of stumbled upon at the conference is is succession, which is the uh, under you know it's an underlying issue for not just agriculture in the in the UK but across the globe you know land is very valuable um but there are siblings but if you split farms down then they aren't often big enough to make an income to support you know to support someone so 
you know, there were lots of people there who were all from families and everybody's thinking the same thing. Am I going to be the farmer? People don't know because farmers often don't talk about it. It's a difficult conversation. There's a lot of dynamics there at play. It can cause a, a lot of difficult tensions in families if it does start to come up. And so sometimes it's easier not to talk about it, but obviously that's only delaying the issue, making it worse. And also farmers sometimes have that attitude of, I'll die with my boots on, i.e., you know, I'm not stopping farming until I, until I cease to exist, in which case they haven't probably thought of succession properly and planned it. So that's a, a massive, a massive issue. And then, you know, so it comes back to that point of maybe why are young people not getting into farming? Well, how do I know if the farm's going to be mine when I'm 35? And if it's not, what's the point of me investing the my 20s in into that? I should probably think about building a career somewhere else uh, before before that. And that's, you know, it's something my mom said to me is make sure you go get a proper career somewhere else before this. I don't know if she meant that in the terms of it might not be yours, but that's a, that's a big issue. That's very hard for for both generations, difficult for the parents and difficult for the offspring. But one thing that you've you sort of highlighted earlier, which I think is really fascinating and I potentially quite worrying, is about how larger farms become the only ones that are viable. And it's been such a feature of British farming that we've had a whole patchwork of little farms but they do seem to be increasingly disappearing. And I just read this morning about the number of dairy farms that have closed in the last year. I think it was something like one in 20. Um, and I don't know what your thoughts are about that, about farms just getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, it's, well, it's bad. I mean, on the whole, studies say big farms um, produce less good quality food. And I'm sure, you know, people like beeswax i.e dyson farming the biggest lander in the uk would say that's not true and things but that's what i've read um and i suppose it's because there's probably a bit less attention to detail and a bit less um ownership etc but yeah i don't think it's a good thing the average size farm in the uk is something like 200 acres now which i suppose you might say that sounds quite big but in terms of what income you can generate of 200 acres it's not always that amazing unless you live right next to a lot of chimney pots and you can make a lot of money from diversification in terms of making money from food production of 200 acres you're going to be pretty hard pushed on the whole um so yeah it's 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 not a good thing but but then it comes down to would it be a problem if food was more valuable if people were have prepared to pay more for their food and and those kinds of things which i suppose we probably won't get into now but um yeah so Yes, but then then we get into that really really difficult conundrum about you know price and valuing food and health because in a cost of living crisis again the evidence is now showing that people are getting fatter because cheap calories are what they can afford. I'm inclined to agree with you. I do think we we don't value food enough, but there's there's such a sort of complexity of reasons around that. I mean we don't. A lot of people don't actually value eating together as a really important cultural family event. There are lots of families where none of the family members eat together and they all eat something different. They just kind of graze out of the fridge going past the microwave, which is really sad. But if if eating together was like a central part of what they did, then they might value food more and then they'd be prepared to pay more if they were able to. 
So, yeah, we're living in very, very interesting times. I'm not sure that mm. the trajectory is going in the right direction. You know, people valued farming together and people don't mm. farm together very often now. This is something else we kind of came off conference. Farming is quite a lonely existence. You sat on the tractor, you're out in the field typically on your own. If you you haven't got a team that you're working with necessarily, you might have a team, but you're not necessarily working with them day to day you know you're not actually shoulder to shoulder you are in separate fields doing your own things and i think that's that's quite off-putting for some people definitely now we're living in 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 interesting times but i think i think it's lovely to hear that there was so much creativity at your uh conference ed and i'm encouraged to hear that you had such a good take up and um you have to come back and tell us all about it after your second conference and see where things have been up to Absolutely, though. That would be great. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Caroline. Bye-bye. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.